0: The Literate Caveman, Episode 13 The Logic of Failure Contextual Dependencies. The effectiveness of a measure almost always depends on the context within which the measure is pursued. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, The Literate Caveman. And today, we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last episode, Dorner used the example of a garden, pond, to illustrate how understanding the interrelationships within a system is critical to formulating useful goals and addressing critical issues. In that example, a lot of work was done to address a bad smell coming from the pond but because the interrelationships of the fish, water, and plants of the pond were not understood, the work did not address the issue. Some principles covered in that episode were positive and negative feedback loops, critical variables, and indicator variables. Today, we will build on these ideas by discussing how abstract thinking is an important mental activity, how overgeneralizing causes issues with formulating hypothesis, and how, most importantly. Strategy is dependent on context. Dorner begins this section with an overview of a French legal expert and mathematician who lived during the 17th century. In 1640, Pierre de Fermat, and I apologize, I probably pronounced it incorrectly, believed he had developed a procedure for finding prime numbers. Now, I am really, really far from being a mathematician. Extremely far so I am going to leave out the details about the formula and some of the examples Dorner reviews. If you're interested in that, I encourage you to look at the book. The reason this seems to have been introduced to the text is because it is a good example of how evidence can be overgeneralized when forming a hypothesis. I also suspect it is simply because the author is fond of math. From what the text reveals, De Format had worked his procedure out to a certain point and felt that he had discovered a consistent method for discovering prime numbers. Apparently, this was true to a certain extent, but in 1732, apparently this was true to a certain extent, but in 1732, a Swiss mathematician worked this out to a point where it no longer proved to be true. Dorner tells us that overgeneralizing is a very common error when formulating hypotheses. Overgeneralizing is an extension of using abstract thought to filter information and reach conclusions. Up to a point, this is very helpful and it makes us more efficient in day-to-day tasks. We do not, for example, need to examine every chair we come across to confirm it is a chair because we have a concept of what a chair is that we can readily access. Quoting from the text, The ability to identify common characteristics in only a few examples of a certain type of thing, and then to formulate an abstract concept on that basis is very useful. And without this ability, we would be overwhelmed by the variety of phenomena we encounter. A few examples of a subject or an object can be enough to provide us with an abstract idea of something. Apparently four examples were enough to convince the mathematician for Matt that he had discovered a general principle for discovering prime numbers. What we need to be cautious of is turning a necessary generalization, such as a chair has four legs and a place to sit, into an overgeneralization, which would mistake a table for a chair, as a very simple example. Returning to his Greenville simulation, and in case this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, or if it's been a while, Greenville was a simulation that Dorner did, where participants were put in charge of a fictional town called Greenvale through a sim- through a computer simulation. Dorner recounts a participant who experienced some initial success by promoting tourism in the fictional town of Greenvale. Apparently in the simulation, some hotels were built and bed and breakfast were encouraged, and this resulted in a financial boon for the city. What might have been viewed as a singular success was seen by the participant as successful policy. In other words, He overgeneralized its importance based on a small sample size. There were other variables within the system that resulted in the timing of the hotels being built being favorable. It sounds like the participant was unaware of this connection and only saw the connection between the decision to build hotels and the resulting boon. If we relate this to last week's example of the garden pond, there is a pond, there's a bad smell coming from the pond, but not understanding how the critical variables interact with each other, if we just clean the pond, we are addressing the symptom and not addressing the cause. So in this Greenville example, we have a participant who made some decisions for the promotion of tourism, saw some success, and did not ask himself what critical variables contributed to that success. Quoting from the text, all he had registered was the success of a general "if then" rule. If I promote tourism, then sooner or later I'll have more money in the town coffers. End quote. Dorner calls this a deconditionalized concept. In other words, a concept removed from the context of conditions bearing on it. So when the participant made the decision to build hotels it, and it generated revenue, he did not identify the critical variables that led to the success. To him, it was simply if I promote tourism then I will do well in this experiment. Later, when the town was heading towards bankruptcy, this participant invested all his available resources in a massive tourism campaign. Because the unidentified critical variables were no longer present, his attempt did not yield positive results. Quoting again from the text, the effectiveness of a measure almost always depends on the context within which the measure is pursued, end quote. The next thing Dorner says in the text is very important. He reminds the reader that a measure that produces good results in one situation may do damage in another. This is an important lesson that can be applied to a variety of different subjects. The way I have phrased this for years is, we need to learn to do what is appropriate at the time, and we need to be cautious of having blanket policies that we apply broadly to all situations. Dorner uses this place in the text to go into a longer discussion about how context needs to influence strategy. There is a lot of detail in this discussion. He gives examples from one of his simulations. This one a simulation where the participant is in control of a fire brigade in a forested region that includes a town. It explains how the variables, such as wind direction, available water, number of fires, size of fires, placement of the different units, etc., Have a direct impact on the context of each strategy. A strategy that can be perfect for one set of variables might be an absolute disaster with different variables. One way Dorner illustrates this is with a basic logic chain. He says, if A and B and C and D are the case, then strategy X. But if A and B and C and E are the case, then strategy Y. You could build out this idea. With as many examples as there are possible strategies, and that will obviously depend on the problem you are trying to solve. Just keep in mind the idea of contextual dependencies and be cautious of relying on a strategy too broadly. This is not easy, but being aware of the idea will put you in a better place than not being aware of it. Even if we begin with an incorrect strategy, if we are aware of this principle and willing to evaluate as we go, we may be able to apply a more contextually successful strategy in time to see success. A side note that can be important here. I think leadership style is one thing that can trip people up when leaders identify too much with the strategy they select. I knew someone in the fitness industry who made his reputation with a very precise opinion about a very specific subject. His opinion had been formed by the narrative that was popular when he was getting established regarding nutrition. His entire population was based on this one thing, and he was inflexible about it. It worked for him for a long time. He owned several successful gyms and was something of a local celebrity. And at one time, I believe he actually had the best-selling infomercial of all time. This is going back quite a few years. But he did not keep up with developing science. Actually. It is probably closer to the truth to say he only focused on the science that supported his narrative. There was plenty of available science at the time that called his stance into question. But he had thrown everything into one strategy, and, as I said, he was inflexible about it. If you make your strategy a stance, or a hill to die on, so to speak, it can put you in a weaker position. As the narrative shifted, and his rigid stance lost credibility, so did he. The point I am trying to make is if we are too rigid or authoritarian in our leadership style, it can make it really hard to change course when we need to. If employees, customers, etc. understand that we are dealing with a complex system and that we are going to do our best to apply the best strategy to the context and understand that means we might see a need to adjust strategies as we go, not only will our chances of success be higher but we won't have to overcome the resistance we can get if we try to establish an authoritarian style of leadership. I would also add that when dealing with employees, clients, or other people who are depending on us for leadership, the way we phrase our strategies can also be really important. I think there's a big difference in saying we see a need to adjust our approach versus change our approach. Saying we need to change our approach can make it look like we were guessing, or that. We did not take enough time to gather information early on, or any number of issues. Establishing at the outset that we will make adjustments to our strategy as we work the process presents a much different mindset and shows that we are paying attention to the nuances of the problem, whatever it may be. Returning to the text, I will share a quote. Anyone who has a lot of information thinks a lot, and by thinking increases his understanding of a situation we'll have not less but more trouble coming to a clear decision. To the ignorant, the world looks simple. If we pretty much dispense with gathering information, it is easy for us to form a clear picture of reality and come to clear decisions based on that picture. Now, he's not advocating for not gathering information, far from it. He's just explaining how this can create a positive feedback loop. And as we continue in the text... Building on this, Dorner cautions that a positive feedback loop can be formed between the amount of information we have and the corresponding uncertainty we might feel. A positive feedback loop, as we discussed in our last episode, does not imply positive in the sense of better. It is positive in the sense of more of same. In this case, the caution is we gain information about a subject and realize we do not know much about it so we feel uncertain about our decision-making. So we have information-gathering and uncertainty. So we seek more information, and this can lead us to possibly feel more uncertain. So what do we do with that? Dorner theorizes that within some institutions, this may be why there is a separation between information-gathering and decision-making branches. Some people have councils of advisors, military commanders have chiefs of staff, He suggests this is so decision-makers will only have the information essential when they need to make a decision. This makes sense, but what about an individual, a small business owner, or a family trying to make an important decision? Not everyone, after all, has advisors, chiefs of staff, and so on. And you know very well that even with these advantages, sometimes leaders make horrendous mistakes. I'll tie up today's episode with some advice for the individual, But first, I want to wrap up Dorner's thoughts on how this positive feedback loop can affect a larger organization. Quoting from the text Positive feedback between uncertainty and information gathering may explain why people sometimes deliberately refuse to take in information. To support this, Dorner relates how Frederick the Great declined to hear about improvements the Austrians and the Russians had made to their artillery leading up to the Seven Years' War which spanned from 1756 to 1763, and involved several countries. Leading up to World War II, he tells us Hitler deliberately ignored information that England would aid Poland if Germany assaulted Poland. There can be an inverse relationship between gathering information and the readiness to make a decision. He relates an experiment devised by Rüdiger von der Weth. Apologies again if I butchered that that makes this clear. In the experiment, participants had to learn how to operate a machine through a simulation that took a raw material and converted it through four different processors into saleable products. Each processor produced a different product based off of the raw material. An exhaust system produced emissions that were collected in a container and could be detoxified. The detoxification process was expensive and had a negative impact on the profits of the machine. It was possible to release the waste into the atmosphere without going through this expensive process. So, the task put before the participants was to operate the machine in such a way that it had the least impact on the environment while producing the most profits. These objectives were intentionally at odds with each other. Compounding the difficulty of this experiment, the participants had a limited time to learn how the machine worked and to grasp the economics of its profits and expenses. The results of the experiment are interesting. The participants who performed badly tended to have a strong impulse to act and a low impulse to gather information. The participants who performed well were more cautious in the beginning, asking more questions. Part of the reason this is interesting is because it is the opposite of what Dorner observed during his Greenvale experiment, where the more successful participants made more decisions and asked fewer questions. So what made the difference? Dorner believes the difference between the two different experiments was the time constraint. He says in both experiments, the good participants gathered enough information to allow them to make necessary decisions. In his Greenville experiment, he says the bad participants responded to the absence of time pressure by gathering too much information. He feels this amount of information led to uncertainty and the uncertainty moved them to gather still more information, and so the positive feedback loop went. Quoting from the text, Dorner tells us, we combat our uncertainty either by acting hastily on the basis of minimal information or by gathering excessive information, which inhibits action and may even increase our uncertainty. This will not go on indefinitely, he says. If time constraints do not force decisions, or we do not feel like we have enough information, most people will throw in the proverbial towel, or give in to irrationality, and base decisions on intuition. Personally, I think intuition has its place, and it can be very important, but I will save my thoughts on that for a, a later talk. Wrapping up this chapter, Dorner tells us there are two coping mechanisms people might fall back on when they reach this point where they feel like they do not have enough information to make good decisions. One he calls horizontal flight, where the person in question retreats to a subject they understand. The other he calls vertical flight, and for that I will quote from the text. We may resort to vertical flight, kicking ourselves free of recalcitrant reality altogether and constructing a more cooperative image of that reality, operating solely within our own minds, we no longer have to deal with reality, but only with what we happen to think about it, End quote. This text was written well before social media was a common, everyday thing, but that last quote seems to me very relevant today. Now, bringing this back to the individual, the family, and the small business owner who may not have a developed network, let's talk about how we can apply this information to help us make the best decisions we can. One thing I will point out briefly, is you and I both know that hindsight is always greater than foresight. In other words, when we look back on any situation, it can be very easy to pick out our mistakes and see what we could have done better. This is natural, and we need to be cautious about berating ourselves in hindsight. It is good to evaluate and to learn from our experiences, but keep things in context with the information you had at the time. Moving forward to the next decision we get to deal with, What are some practical things we can do to avoid the positive feedback loop? Dorner is warning us of. Obviously, Dorner wrote an entire book on the subject, and we are working through that together now, but here are a few thoughts that might be helpful. If you are married or in a committed relationship, hopefully, the other half is someone you can at least brainstorm with and bounce ideas off of. And obviously, I should need to add, that should go both ways, hopefully. (laughs) That might be specific to certain subjects, but that is normal and brings us to my next point. There is an old saying that who we become is influenced by the five people we surround ourselves with the most. The five people you spend the most time with have a direct impact on your mindset. I think one of the reasons five people is considered is because we should not expect any one person, even a spouse, to advise us in every area. Picking on myself, for example, I am a good resource for my friends and family for exercise, nutrition, mindset, suggestions about good books to read, self-defense, and a few other things. However, if you need accounting advice or anything to do with even basic math, get as far away from me as possible. It doesn't matter how good my intentions are, I am not well equipped in those areas. I will give you bad advice, unintentionally. Or at the very least, make your simple math problem much more complicated than it needs to be. Now, hopefully, I am self-aware enough to see this limitation in myself and not give bad advice. But some people just cannot help themselves, either from an overdeveloped desire to be helpful, or because their ego won't let them recognize they are out of their depth, or for some other reason. Some people will always have an opinion, identify those people, understand that tendency in them, And figure out the best way to filter their advice. So if we accept that no one person is going to have all the answers, which also means that in spite of our best intentions, we will not have all the answers for everyone either, that suggests we require a small circle of friends or confidence. It also means we need to be mature enough to not feel threatened if someone close to us goes to someone else for advice that is out of our scope. Be selective about who you allow into your life. Now. You might consider this and realize the five people you spend the most time with are not well-suited to advise you on important decisions. Sometimes, when we evaluate the people in our lives, we will realize we need new people. As in, if you are spending time with people who are toxic and bringing your life down, take a hard look at that. Other times, what we need is not to replace the people in our lives, but we might need to add to our available pool of acquaintances. This is easier said than done, but joining a group that represents an interest or a hobby you have can be a solid start. Note that I am talking about actual interactions with actual people, not virtual interactions or social media interactions exclusively. Finding a good church can be a good step here, but I realize that is easier said than done. But if you think about this and realize you have a lack of good people in your life, consider plugging into a hobby or interest that you have and meeting some people. I am not suggesting you are going to find 5 new people in one group, but if you realize that you have 0 and you find 1, that is a step in the right direction. Also, as kind of a tongue-in-cheek aside, if you have children and the people you spend with the most time with are your children, um, I'm not suggesting you replace your children, so don't do that. Just add to your circle of people. Another possible option is to identify a mentor. Again, easier said than done. But the suggestion to plug into a good church or to get involved in an interest or perhaps a local community group applies here too. Actually, if you start a new hobby, join a Bible study, or even a book club, you might end up with a mentor without realizing it. When I say mentor, don't get stuck in like a... Mentors aren't just for very young people, okay? We need mentors throughout our life at different life stages, and a mentor is just someone who Either knows more about a subject than you do, or someone that you can confide in, or we'll get into a little bit more here. Again, that one person is not going to have all the answers to every situation you need to deal with. But if you are at zero, and you add one, that is a 100% improvement. Also, sometimes when we are dealing with a complex situation, we might not need advice as much as we need someone to listen while we verbalize our thoughts. Keep that in mind. A good listener does not always need to be able to give advice. Sometimes, they just need to be able to ask the right questions and listen. You can apply that to yourself as well. If you find yourself in a mentor position, or even just helping a friend who needs some advice, quite often, people know what they need to do. They just need to talk it out, which means advice is not what they require. Sometimes people just need a patient listener and maybe some thoughtful questions not someone to solve their problems. Alright, that wraps up today's episode of The Literate Caveman. Next week, we are getting into Chapter 5 of The Logic of Failure and discussing the differences between linear versus exponential growth, among other things. Thank you for listening. Now go read a book.